0: If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, if you happen to grab a guest Bible, that is page 823, it's where we were last week because we're going to pick up pretty much where we left off there and, uh, in Luke's account of John the Baptist in preparation for Christ to step onto the scene. We're going to close out this Advent series by looking at these concluding remarks here in Luke's introduction about the ministry and life of uh, John the Baptist here, beginning Luke chapter 3 and verse 15 down through verse 18. The gospel writer Luke says everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you With the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Now, this passage, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, is a continuation of the one preceding it where we were last week is rife with anticipation. Because John, rightly so, represents to the people a genuine movement of God out in the wilderness. And in his preaching, the people were able to discern the voice of God, the voice that they, at least prophetically speaking, hadn't heard for centuries. And so people were coming to him with an eagerness to find out if he was, in fact, the promised one that would usher in a new age that they were all expecting and anticipating. And John's response to their questions, as you can imagine, was right in line with what we've come to learn about John. It was both uncomfortable to hear and pointed toward another person, pointed beyond himself. It was, first and foremost, a public refutation of who he wasn't. Isn't that interesting? When someone introduces themselves first by saying who he's not, well, that's John the Baptist, John had zero interest in being acclaimed as someone other than who he really was. And I want you to just take a moment as you ponder that and compare and contrast that to many of the people that are around us today in this social media age that we live in, where everything is all about the outward presentation, where only the best snapshot of our faces, the best perfectly staged picture of our families and our homes is ever put out there for the world to see. Or in many cases where people will only share doctored versions of themselves with all the blemishes removed, all the artifacts you know, purged from the, the picture, where perhaps even our features are enhanced or even exaggerated. You see filters in and, and, and different social media apps that, that make someone look totally different than what they actually look like because it's all about the presentation. It's all about being something that we're not particu- particularly actually, if that makes any sense. We've become avatars doctored versions of ourselves, or perhaps of someone else altogether. And this is epitomized, by the way, in the world of fame and celebrity, where it's all about the public persona maintaining the perception of an identity, not the real identity. You don't get to see the real me. You don't get to see the, 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 the flaws. You don't get to see the, the truth behind the facade. You see the facade. You see that, that beautifully curated, you know, palatable caricature of of something that maximizes my profitability. You can't see the actual me because if you saw the actual me, well then you probably wouldn't like what you saw. And so you see a different version of me altogether. And John, he, he shows up on the scene of the world and says, I don't have any interest in any of that nonsense. You see, John, he epitomizes the opposite of all of that. I mean, look no further than how the guy dressed. <laughs> look no further than his diet. Look no further than where he came from, what he called home. The last thing John ever wanted was to receive fame or credit or accolades for what he wasn't, but instead only ever worked to direct those things to the one who rightly deserved them. And in this way, John represents for you and for me and for all the world to see, well, basically the value system of another kingdom altogether, He's the opposite of what this world values and cherishes and stands for and seeks to be. And that's always the case with God's prophets. I mean, the the genuine prophets of God always came into the world with a word from God to call the people of God to move counterculturally against the streams of the world. If the world is heading this direction and God's people are swept up in the streams in the direction that the world is moving, the prophets come to stand and say, Stop! We need to go this direction. Because the world is moving in opposition to God. The world is organized without reference to him and to his values and the, and the values of the kingdom of heaven. And the prophets came in to, to fix that situation. And so John, not only with his ragged garb and his, his you know, crazy appearance, he doesn't just evoke you know, the, the idea of the prophets or the image of the prophets. He embodies their message. His whole person was exhibit A of what it means to conform to the kingdom of God, one that stands against and above the kingdom's and values and customs of this world. And Though rough and dirty and awkward, you and I need his example during what has become the single most commercialized and secularized season of the year. That's right, the single most commercialized and secularized season of the year. Do you know, and of course you know because I mentioned it when it happened, that your Walmart had Christmas things to sell before Halloween. Before Halloween. Why? Is it because the good people at Walmart are so excited to celebrate the birth of Christ who came into the world to redeem and save the lost that we might have life everlasting? Why? Well, it's because Christmas is all about what? (laughs) It's all about money. Now listen, I frequently make Walmart the butt of all my jokes. It's only because it's such a deep, it's kind of like, you know, Stephen teasing Richard. It's because he loves Richard so much that we all tease Richard because we love him so much. Maybe it's not exactly like that because I wouldn't say I love Walmart, but Walmart is definitely a part of all of our lives and we don't really have a choice. We just have to face it. And I don't hold it against Walmart that they exist to earn profits. I have no problem with capitalism. I, I cherish our, you know, the economic system that we live in. I think it's the best the world has ever seen, and, I, and I'm a champion of it, great. But let's, let's not miss what's going on in the world's view of Christmas. The world takes Christmas, and it co-ops its true purpose, and it does so in pursuit of prosperity and greed. And I'll, and I'll tell you, as a Christian parent, doing my very, very best, which is never good enough, but it's my very best, along with my wife, who's always a step ahead of me, it is really hard to raise godly children in a world like this. It's hard. And that's why more than ever, all the rest of you, Maybe, maybe, you, maybe your children are, are not, maybe you never had children. Maybe for some reason you've lost your children. I, I hope that's not the case. Maybe they've grown up and they're not in your life. Maybe you're focused primarily on the grandchildren. I don't know what your situation is, but i can tell you this. My children need this church. They need you. You play a part in the life of my child. I cannot tell you what a joy and a blessing it was for me Friday night to see my children, along with other children, along with some grandchildren, And you big children up here on this platform together. The multi-generational choir was a blessing. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for that being in your heart. Uh, That It's beautiful. It's hard. It's hard to raise godly children in a world like this, especially during a season like this where the focus is on everything but what it's supposed to be on. And we, as Christians... Perhaps more than anyone need the message and example of John to remind us that God is calling his people to move against the streams of the world. Not to get caught up in them, not to follow, not to just fall into line, but to move against the flow. And my question is, where is the church today that's doing that? Where is the church today that's set apart from the world for God? Do you know that that is the actual definition of of sanctified? You know We're good Wesleyan, Arminian holiness people. And, and we love saying words like sanctify. But do you know that that's exactly what it means? It means to be set apart, holy for God. Holy with an H, holy as God is holy. But I would also add holy with the W-H, belonging completely to him. To, to be like God and to be totally God's. To where we have all of him, Oh, but he has all of us to be filled by his spirit, the one who cleanses and purges and transforms us from the inside out. And I wonder if maybe the reason why so many churches make little to no impact on their communities, let alone having an impact or reach around the world, as was just mentioned a moment ago, rightly by Pastor Max, I wonder if why so many churches fail to do that is because they're filled with people who who have not yet been set apart for God. They have not allowed themselves to become gods. They have not made the life of God part of themselves and received by faith all the grace of God, not just grace that forgives, but grace that that transforms and heals and and makes us into the image and likeness of Christ. Perhaps that's one of us or two of us or a hundred of us here this morning. Maybe we're more concerned about how we look at our cocktail parties or what our neighbors think about our Castles or cars. Maybe you and I are more interested in our hobbies or our promotions or our 401ks or in making names for ourselves among our peers or establishing legacies that honor our achievements when we're long and gone. Advent gives you and me the opportunity, because of God's word, to look into the eyes of crazy John and think deeply about our priorities. To think deeply. Do your priorities align with the priorities of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the things that that are in the heart of God, or do they align with the things and the priorities of the world? Yesterday morning, and by the way, I want to say a quick thank you to those of you who uh, signed up to help ring the bells for the Salvation Army kettle campaign yesterday. Um, I, know, I know it was, um, it wasn't, the weather wasn't bad, but You know, it can get kind of old standing there in one place ringing that bell. And some of you, in fact, a lot of you took uh, two-hour shifts instead of one-hour shifts. So thank you for your service. You made a difference. There was one couple, I won't call you out, but they were the last couple of the day at the Walmart spot, and they were supposed to be done at 7, and no one showed up because there was a miscommunication. By the way, on the Salvation Army side, it wasn't my fault, so I'm going to throw them under the bus. Um, No one showed up to collect the kettle at 7, and so they faithfully rang the bell until someone came at 8. And I just thought, what a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ. So thank you all of you who served yesterday. What a a gift that is to our community. I had the 11 to 12 o'clock window, and Savannah and I, uh, we got to go and do that together. We've always done it as a family. This year, uh, Becca and the boys weren't able to make it. Uh, They they had some things that came up, but Savannah and I were there, and we pull into the, the parking lot of Hobby Lobby, and we park at the very back of the lot. And as soon as we got out, I heard some music that caught my attention instantly. And as I got closer to uh, relieve the Wartmans from, from their post, I realized there was a, a, a young couple that had set up uh, right across the street in the parking lot from the kettle with uh, a violin plugged into an amplifier. And he was playing music on the violin while the uh, presumably the wife, who was pregnant, was holding a sign saying, you know, they had lost their their work, they needed money for rent, and, you know, he's playing to hope, in the hopes that people would come and put money in the, in the guitar or violin case. By the way, he, he, I hate to do this, but he wasn't playing the violin. He was pretending to play the violin. And I'm only mentioning that because the point I'm going to make here in a minute is going to uh, make a reference to that. Uh, it looked like he was playing. He was really convincing. He was dancing around. He was playing, you know, real hard. But I noticed that, like, as you're hearing one single note, his left hand was going like this. And I was like, I'm not a musical guy but even i can i can sniff that one out a mile away i'm on to you buddy i know what's going on here now these two were there the entire time that we were ringing the bells and something i found happening to me as i was ringing cuz you have to ring continuously you don't get to ring for a minute and then stop you have to ring that thing for an hour straight and what i noticed about myself is as he was playing a song and by the way it wasn't just the violin it was set to like this electronic like dubstep like you know kind of music i found myself <laughs> you know, ringing the bell. And I didn't, I wasn't trying to. It just happened. I just found myself, you know, matching his rhythm. And I had to make myself stop. Sean, stop doing it. In fact, when I first walked up, Jeff was up there dancing. It was so funny. You, I wish you could have seen I should have gotten my camera out and recorded him. But it was just so natural for me to, to ring my bell along to the rhythm of his song And as this was going on, and I was uh, conflicted at war with myself through this, it occurred to me, because this message is on my mind the whole time, it occurred to me, what a perfect metaphor for what I'm talking about here. How easy it is, how natural it is for you and for me, even as Christians, to fall into the rhythms of the world. Just happens. It's, it's our default. You take 20 cars and put them in a, a two lane road with a stoplight, and 15 of them with no turns. Just there's a stop and they're going straight. 15 of them in a row on one side and five on the other. We're, why? Because we're wired to just fall into line. And, and as far as the way that the world works, it's, it's the world we live in. It's, it's, our, it's our habitat. It's what we were born into. It's all we know. And it's not just we're in the world, but the world is in us. But God is working. He's working to extract not his people out of the world, but the world out of his people. And he's calling for us to move with intentionality, with another, to another rhythm. The rhythm of his kingdom, with his values, with his priorities. And it's not easy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not easy to break rhythm from the world. It's, it, we hear that siren call, that fake violin music. that's that's wooing us, that's drawing us. It's promising something to us. It's promising to be one thing, but it's something else altogether, and we just gravitate towards it. It's so simple. It feels so natural. We need the help of someone mightier than we to help us to hear and desire a better song, to which John replies, I love it with just the most sincere And in genuine humility, I know just the guy. I know him. He's so far greater, so much more mightier than I am, that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. Luke says, as we read a moment ago in verse 15, that everyone was expecting the Messiah to come and to come soon. I think that's interesting that this was on the minds of everybody. It's not just some little group, you know, some particular sect that was anticipating some sort of messianic arrival. No, this was on the minds and hearts of everybody. Everybody had their own expectations. Everybody had their, their, their ideas of what this was going to be. Everyone was focused on this imminent reality. And John shows up and says, hey, the one that you're expecting is different than what you're expecting. It's interesting to me how the people were as much interested in an age, right? They're interested in an age, an era that was coming, one that was marked by purity of doctrine. You know, one that was marked by military conquest, where where God's Messiah would come and crush crush the, the oppressors. He would come, he would defeat all the nations of the world, particularly Rome, and then Israel would enter into an era where Israel would rule the world where Israel would become the the full and final possessors of the land. They were interested in a messianic age as much as a messianic figure. And John comes and he says, listen, don't focus so much on some messianic age. I want you to focus on a messianic person. Look less at the signs. Look less at the conditions. Look less at the geopolitical outcomes of of the era that you're anticipating and look instead to him. Look to him in all the gospels recorded in some form or fashion. Look to him. It's no coincidence to me that John's ministry essentially ends at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Because it's there where, where John's ministry comes to its, its climax when he says, there he is. There he is. He's more than an idea. He's more than a figure. He's greater than just the the symbol of a coming era. No. He is God himself. In the flesh. Greater than all of our preconceived notions and expectations. And it is just as important that you know who he is as it is knowing what he came to do. And that is a really loaded statement that I hope by the power of the Spirit was communicated clearly and is received rightly. It's not just a matter of knowing the things that he came to do. You have to know who he is. And It was at the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan where we see first the most crystal clear revelation of God's nature to the world. The voice of God, affirming the Son of God, upon whom descended the Spirit of God. That's not coincidence. It's not just some happy thing that happened that someone just managed to see. No, this was a a moment of crystal clear revelation into the very nature of reality. This is what it's all about. You want to know what God is like? Jesus steps onto the scene and says, this is what God is like. I love what Dennis Kinlaw says about, about Jesus. He says, Jesus came to, to reveal monotheism with a twist. <laughs> I love that. Monotheism with a twist. God the Father sent God the Son to be baptized and to baptize with God the Holy Spirit. Which is another way of saying that the mightier one comes to immerse people into the very life and power of God. Zechariah, by the power of the Spirit, rightly prophesied to his son about his son when he said, you, my son, you will tell people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. You remember that from three weeks ago back in Luke chapter 1. But the one to come will not only forgive sins but by him we will be cleansed by sin's defilement and liberated from sin's power that's salvation not just finding forgiveness for the things we've done wrong but he comes and he wipes the slate clean and he purges the, the stain from, from those, that nature of sin and that history of sin from our lives and he breaks its stranglehold upon us so that we don't have to sin any longer That's a far cry from the gospel message preached in the majority of our churches today which normalize sin and make it inevitable in the life of the Christian. And and Jesus steps on the scene and he says, no. It's more than that. It has to be more than that. By him, you are made new. You're a new creation. doesn't mean you can't sin. That's not what we're saying. That's what sort of state of perfection in this life or you're absolutely perfect. You'll never be absolutely perfect. Only God is absolutely perfect. Who would ever teach such a thing? It's heresy. But what's, what is normalized in your life? Is it sin or is it holiness? The gospels and the epistles and the scriptures seem to indicate that God wants to normalize holiness in the life of his people. And by him you are made new Like we said last week, you remove the old garments and you put on the new. Garments of true righteousness and holiness. Enabled. Enabled to move against the streams of the world. It's not just a call to move against the streams of the world. It's the power to move against the streams of the world. He's not dangling some impossibility over your life. He's not coming to say, Shame on you for falling into line with the ways of the world. You should be going that direction. And you'd be like, How? I can't do it. I'm powerless. Sin defines me from the inside out. He says, Not any longer. I came to break the power of that in your life. I am the, my, I am the principle in your life now. I am the power. I created you after my own image. And you have all that you need for life and godliness. It's the gospel. He comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But listen, he baptizes also with fire. And a lot of well-meaning biblical exegetes and preachers, I think, have wrongly applied the expression and fire to what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There's nothing in our text here that indicates that's what John is talking about. Now is it true that in some way it anticipates, you know, the image of the Holy Spirit's presence through, you know, the flames of perhaps. But that's not the pr- the primary point. Remember all of John's language, everything he's saying is language borrowed from the Old Testament, primarily from the prophets. And so to understand and decode to interpret rightly what he's saying, we need all of that context, not just the context there. We need the context in the text. What does the text say? He comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And by the way, that's that's an important thing to note. In our NLT, it reads with the Holy Spirit and with fire, as if there's two different prepositions. And friends, in the Greek, there is only one. It's with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, in a sense, he's talking about one baptism. Okay? I'm going somewhere with this, so don't let me lose you. One baptism, and the address from John is directed to one people that Greek word humas, you all. He's talking to a mix of people. There is a baptism that is coming for you all. And all of this language is Old Testament language. You go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Malachi, you get all of them. When you combine spirit and fire and then at times when it's included with language of water because we're in a baptism context here, all of this points to what? The discriminating judgment of God. The discriminating judgment of God. This isn't just a nice, beautiful, you know, prophetic you know, in anticipation of what with the, with the apostles experienced in the upper room in a few years. Now, John's talking bigger. Yes, he's talking about the possibility of being immersed into the life of God. Thank you that you baptize with the Holy Spirit. But he's also talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment. He's been talking about judgment. And he continues talking about judgment. John's message to the audience of the world is that you and I all will either be baptized into the life of God or into the judgment of God. Those are the options. There's no, there's no third option, friends. And there's a lot of you who are sort of coasting through life. You may even come in and out of church from time to time. And you think that my best will cut it. I'm not necessarily for Jesus. But you know, I'm not really against Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. He leaves no room for debate. That's why everyone hates him. That's why the world hates Jesus. That's why Christmas is an affront to the world, which is the primary reason, I believe, that, it, that the message has been co-opted, because we don't want to think about the message of Jesus. We don't want to think about the person of Jesus, what he represents. God in the flesh come to separate the wheat from the chaff, which is exactly what John says. Thank you for the beautiful picture in the video on the screen Jeff, while you played, that was tremendous, by the way, the offertory of Mary holding the baby. Oh, I love the warm fuzzies of Christmas, don't you? My heart, I was literally like choking back tears. Yes, I'm a dad, I'm getting old, and I'm becoming more and more sentimental all the time. It's ridiculous. I cry at the stupid, I cry at commercials for crying out loud. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I see the baby, the baby in Mary's arms, and I'm just reflecting all the, the, the wonder and the majesty and the joy of Christmas. And then I remembered why he came. Yes, absolutely to save, absolutely to redeem, absolutely to restore. But he's coming again, friends. He's coming again. He baptizes with fire. And so, for this reason, Advent must always point to Second Advent. And I confess, in all the years I've been preaching Advent messages, that's been my single greatest failure as a preacher is to make that connection intentionally. It may be in my mind, it may be you know, in the back of my mind, but it's in my mind, it's in my heart, but it's not always in my preaching. That first Advent, by necessity, demands that we consider second Advent. They're connected. It's not two separate gods, it's not two separate messiahs, it's not two separate Christ, it is one same God in Christ, who came once and who's coming again. And he comes a second time, not in humility, not in weakness, not in the arms of a a virgin teen. No, he's coming on the clouds with a winnowing fork in his hand. Look, you know me, those of you who've been here long enough, for those of you who just only been coming the last few weeks, you may not believe me when I say this, because of the the subject matter for the last number of weeks have, has been really heavy. It's been a lot of this kind of stuff, and it's just the way the the preaching schedule went. But those of you who know me well know I'm not one of those you know doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone type preachers, where that's like my only message all the time. I, I don't I don't I don't I don't appreciate that type of. I understand it, and I think at times there's a pla- I know there's a place for it, but. I'm concerned with the totality of the health and the life of the church, not just one, it's not my one pet thing. So while I'm not a a doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone preacher, I am committed to the truth of God's word. And I believe the church has a prophetic witness to the world that God isn't just love, He's holy love. That is a huge difference. It's not just love. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1229, he is what? A consuming fire. And the fire of the holiness of God, it'll either refine or destroy. And the righteous, as John says. Who have been you know, gathered into the barn of his grace and mercy, well, they will be made like him. But the unrighteous, they will be consumed like chaff in a blast furnace. Concerning this, Luke says, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but in verse 18, John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. <laughs> Look, it is good news, but not because it's nice. It's good news because it's true. And the people of the world and the people of the church who are still in the world need to hear it. Because the proclamation of the word of God precedes the coming of the, of the word of God. You see it? He doesn't... The the one who is the Word, capital W, the Word of the Father, didn't just show up one day unannounced. There was preparation. The Word was preceded by the Word. And, And its proclamation always precedes his coming. Not just into the world stage in history, but even now. The Word is coming and is here through the proclamation of his word, and to receive one is to receive the other. You receive his word, you receive him. And you cannot receive him unless you receive his word. A word which precedes the word. Will you receive it, friends? Will you hear the word of God speaking through the word of God? (laughs) You know, in many ways, I think John, I think John is... A picture of what the church is supposed to be, what we're called to be. People whose countercultural lifestyles are incomprehensible to the world. (laughs) There's not enough weird Christians, are there? There's all too many Christians that look no different than their neighbors in every measurable way. I don't think that's what God has for your life and for mine. We are to be a people whose countercultural lifestyles are incomprehensible to the world, marked by the presence of the Spirit, motivated by the values and the priorities and the principles of another kingdom, moving to the beat of a different drum. People whose whole lives are oriented and pointed toward the one who is greater. That's John's life. He doesn't want any attention on himself. He only ever wants to direct the attention and the fame and the accolades and the glory to him. Is that not a picture of the church? People who see themselves as they really are, there's a humility in John. Is there humility in your life? Do you see yourself as you really are? Or are you so wrapped up in your avatar of yourself that you're presenting to the world that you've lost your whole sense of reality? No, like John, we are to see ourselves as we really are, and we need to see him as he truly is. But you know what, as much as John is, I think, a representative picture of what the church is called to be, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 11, verse 11. He says, I tell you the truth, of all who ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise coming from the Lord. No one greater in the history of the world. Yet, (laughs) even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. what are you saying, Jesus? Well, I think he's saying something like this. John's greatness lay in his proximity to Jesus. Because of his relationship to Jesus, his, his closeness to Jesus, who he was as it pertained to the person of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and the priorities of Jesus, John was great. And he, but as great as John was, he represents and brings to a climax the era of preparation. You could even perhaps wanting you could even call him, maybe I shouldn't say this because I haven't thought it through. Maybe John is the last of the Old Testament prophets in that sense. He brings to conclusion the era of preparation, but you and I belong to the era of fulfillment. And those who have come to Jesus Christ in faith, those who have been fully immersed into the life of God, and who are filled to the full with the presence of the Spirit. Well, they experience a life-transforming intimacy and closeness to God that to John could only be seen with prophetic eyes. Maybe he could see it, but he saw it at a distance. But you and I live it. Oh, thank you, Stephen. We are highly what did you say? Highly favored. We are highly favored. Indeed, we hold a privileged place within the scheme of salvation history. To John, the mightier one is coming. But to you and to I, the mightier one has come. He has come. And so I wonder if this morning, I wonder if the remainder of this Christmas season for the next week and change, I wonder if our whole lives can't revolve around Can we break from the streams of the world? He gives you what you need to to do it. Can we march to the rhythm of a different drum? Can we make the mightier one? Can he occupy the center stage of our hearts? One who's so great that you and I aren't even worthy enough to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. And yet he looks us straight in the eyes and he says, I don't call you slaves. I call you friend. I call you friend. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you call a worm such as I your friend. Not because I've done anything to earn it or deserve it, but only because of the richness of your grace and mercy which you have lavished upon us by your Son and Spirit. Thank you, Father, for opening up the storehouses of heaven. (laughs) You've blessed us with all the blessings from the heavenlies, as Paul wrote in Ephesians. You've held nothing back. Jesus, you are the gift. Thank you, Lord, that all we have to do is receive you today. We don't have to muster up the power, or the goodness, the strength, the motivation, but just say yes to your supply of it all. Yes, yes, we say yes to you. Come and shake up my heart, and my priorities, and my expectations. Come and take me as I fall into line with the world, and and bring me back to reality, that I wasn't created for the world, The world was created for us, for us to spread the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas, from end to end, full of your glory. Lord, be glorified in us, in this church, in our lives, in our relationships. Help us to bring all the attention to you. And we thank you, Lord, for what this season truly means. Help us, to, help us to remember it for one more week. Oh, I love that we're coming to church on Sunday, on Christmas Day. I love it. And I know some folks can't. I get it. Oh, Lord, I pray that those who can would be here, that they wouldn't be content to just tune in on Facebook, but that they would be here together so that we as a people can celebrate you, can worship you together on such a day as that. Christmas is not about Santa and it's not about our gifts, it is about Jesus the gift. Lord, may that be at the center of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.